This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss extraordinary altruism, more specifically, the act of voluntarily donating a kidney to a stranger. With me to discuss the topic is Georgetown psychology professor Abigail Marsh. Professor Marsh, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Professor Marsh's bio is posted on the podcast website. On background, according to the National Kidney Foundation, currently over 100,000 Americans are awaiting a kidney donation. The median wait time is over three and a half years. While there were 17,000 kidney transplants in 2014, half of this number, or 8,700, either died while waiting for a kidney transplant or became too ill to receive one. The benefits of a donated kidney are significant. They extend life by approximately 14 quality-adjusted life years. Evaluated another way, the expected benefits to recipients are more than 100 times the expected costs to the donor. The vast majority of live donations are from a sibling, child, parent, spouse, or other relative. Approximately 2,000 kidney donations, or about 1.4% of all live donations, however, have come voluntarily, and the number of voluntary or non-direct donations is growing rapidly. They've doubled from 180 to 360 between 2008 and 12. The decision to voluntarily donate is considered an act of extraordinary altruism since doing so is beyond rare, costly, and can, in rare instances, endanger the donor's life. With me to discuss what accounts for these extraordinary acts of altruism is, again, Professor Abigail Marsh. So with that as background, uh, Professor, you told, I thought, an instructive uh, story on this uh, behavior in a TED Talk you delivered last year, and that was uh, an experience you had as a teenager driving home one night, I believe it was in Portland. Uh, close, yes, it was in Tacoma, Washington. Oh, excuse me. That's fine. They are very close, <laughs> uh, and very similar in a lot of ways. Um, no, I was, uh, yeah, I was driving home to Tacoma from Seattle on the big interstate that connects the two cities, and a dog ran out in front of my car, and when I did what you're not supposed to do, which is swerve to avoid the dog, I, I hit it anyways. And it also sent my car into a uh, fishtail and then uh, into a, a series of donuts across the freeway, just sort of spinning across. And um, so I ended up stranded on this freeway. And out of nowhere, um, a man who must have pulled over uh, after seeing my car stranded on the freeway uh, appeared next to my car um, and offered to help me get back to safety. And uh, he absolutely risked his life by running across the freeway in the middle of the night to try to help me out. And um, I did make it back uh, to safety totally unharmed and was on my way, but was left with these sort of gnawing questions about why somebody would take that kind of risk to save the life of somebody that they'd never met before. Uh, very good example. Thank you. So let's get to your research you recently published with several other authors a piece in Nature Human Behavior uh, that tried to assess or explain what accounts for this 
uh, behavior. Let's start with the qualitative data, mm -hmm. and that is what explanations do donors provide uh, when you ask them why did they, again, voluntarily donate a kidney to a stranger? That's a great question. Um, so I've interviewed, I would say, at least 50 or 60 altruistic kidney donors at this point uh, over the course of the research that my group has done. And that's always one of the questions we ask them, which is just why did you donate your kidney to a stranger? And what's interesting about it is how it's hard for them to answer the question, mainly because I think for them it seems like the obvious thing for a person to do. Uh, when confronted with the fact that somebody in the world, well, in fact, many people in the world, as you mentioned, 100,000 Americans right now uh, are in kidney failure, and at some point are going to die without a donor kidney. And the fact that most people uh, who are healthy have two kidneys and could get along just fine with one, they, they feel like the obvious thing to do is to give up one of your kidneys and give it to this other person who, without it, is going to die. And for them, it's, it's difficult to understand why somebody wouldn't make that decision. And so what they normally say, and again, they're, you know, I don't want to represent them inaccurately is overly homogenous or not. They're, you know, you know, any description of a human being you could think of, I've talked to somebody like that who's um, donated a kidney, which is very cool. But I would say that the, the most common response that I hear when I ask why they donated a kidney is that they heard uh, maybe a, a news story or saw a news story about somebody who had received um, a kidney donation and who had been very ill at death's door received a kidney from a stranger and is now healthy and happy again. And um, a lot of people don't know that it's possible to donate kidneys to strangers, and many of the donors I've talked with have said they didn't know that you could do that. And then as soon as they found out you could, and that there are people out there who were so ill whose lives would be saved by a donation like this, they thought, I want to do that. And it just is that quick. And um, more than one has, has described it as, you know, like a bolt of lightning striking or... That they just instantly thought, I want to do that. And then oftentimes afterward, they'll go back and sort of do a little research and make sure that it's the, that the risks are acceptable to them. Um, but it's not a protracted decision-making process, interestingly. Interesting. In your uh, nature uh, piece, there is this discussion about social discounting. Uh, what is social discounting, and how does it contribute or explain uh, this behavior. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, one of the most interesting things about altruistic kidney donors is that they are donating their kidney to somebody they've never met before. And in the case of non-directed kidney donors, it's somebody they may never meet, um, depending on whether the recipient ends up wanting to meet them afterward. And most people, not everybody, as it turns out, you'd be amazed how many people would not consider donating a kidney even to somebody very close to them, like a spouse or a parent or a child. I've heard some incredible stories. But in any case, most people would uh, very quickly and easily uh, agree to donate a kidney to uh, somebody who's very close to them. Uh, and then the willingness to donate tends to drop off the more distant the recipient gets. So if you know that you could save the life of your mother or your child by donating a kidney. For most people, that's a really easy decision. Um, but then as the relationships get more distant, maybe a, a friend or somebody that you work with or somebody that is only an acquaintance, the willingness to, to donate drops off pretty dramatically. And what's interesting is you see that exact same curve 
with other kinds of generosity as well. And uh, in particular, you see it in this um, paradigm that's called uh, the social discounting paradigm that we used in our study, where you ask people um, to make a decision between two options, one of which is some large amount of money for themselves and one of which is splitting some amount of money with somebody else, which involves sacrificing how much you will get. So would you prefer to get, for example, $150 for yourself or would you prefer to split some other amount with another person and sacrifice $80 that you could have gotten for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people will readily sacrifice, you know, $80 so that somebody very close to them can benefit. They'd much rather get less money if it means that somebody that's close to them can get more. And then the uh, willingness to sacrifice drops off a lot when it comes to money as people get more and more distant. And so uh, that looked a lot like what we see in the world of kidney donation. And uh, which is why we we thought to test how altruistic kidney donors respond in a social discounting task. Okay, so per the article, the statement was made: altruists exhibit decreased social discounting, as you just explained. Let me, as a related, I was curious: in querying or surveying these donors, do they tend to be, and intuitively, I would guess they would be more just generally philanthropic, or would that assumption not be correct? That's a good question. They they do tend to um, engage in other kinds of behavior that is a similar sort of um, response to need or suffering. So, for example, rescuing abandoned or stray animals, um, maybe fostering children, uh, helping the homeless. We've had quite a few who've worked for the Peace Corps. Um, and so they, they clearly a stronger response than the average person to the idea or the sight of somebody else who's suffering. They really um, are very strongly motivated. Um, but then when I've asked others about, you know, sort of, I remember asking uh, one person that we've worked with about uh, altruistic behavior, and he mentioned um, that, for example, he doesn't um, donate to the NPR pledge drive. <laughs> And so he um, he felt like, you know, he wasn't described as a generally altruistic person because of that. But to me, that actually makes sense. That's not a, that isn't a, a immediate response to a sort of need or vulnerability. And so I wouldn't expect that it would go along with um, the kinds of behavior um, that they, that uh, is entailed on extraordinary altruism. Okay, thank you. Your research has also involved the studying of the brain and what about uh, altruist components of the brain may explain this. And this gets to your finding relative to uh, an altruist um, amygdala. What, can you explain what did you find? And interesting, I, as you explained, you looked at this initially from the perspective of um, uh, persons who are psychopathic. Exactly. So my prior research had been aimed at trying to understand where the tendency or the ability to care about other people's welfare came from by studying people who don't have a lot of that quality. So they they don't tend to care a lot about other people's suffering. Uh, And people who are psychopathic, who have psychopathic personality traits, do tend to be pretty callous and not that interested in other people's um, pain or distress. And in my previous research with adolescents who have psychopathic personalities, we found that they are less responsive to other people's fear in particular, and that uh, seems to be associated with three pretty reliable 
traits, one of which is that they have trouble recognizing when other people are afraid. So if you just show them pictures of people's emotional facial expressions, uh, they are pretty reliably impaired in even being able to identify other people's fear from their facial expressions. And that seems to be linked to their reduced amygdala responses to fearful expressions. And the amygdala is a, a brain structure um, underneath the cortex that's sort of an ancient brain structure we share with a lot of other species that's involved in a number of emotional and social phenomena. But we know from a variety of other kinds of research that the, uh, the amygdala is particularly important for recognizing other people's fear. And people who are psychopathic have a very weak amygdala response when other people are afraid, which may be why they can't recognize it. And then in addition, they have amygdalas that are smaller than average. And so um, these uh, traits help us get a little closer to understanding why it is that they seem to be willing to cause so much suffering in people. And it may be because they have difficulty registering when other people are suffering or sort of even understanding what it means to suffer. Um, and so when I started conducting the research with the altruistic kidney donors, the um, question I had was, well, do they have brains that look the opposite of that? These are people who seem to care more than average about other people's suffering or welfare. And so we conducted a brain imaging study that found that, in fact, uh, altruistic kidney donors have sort of anti-psychopathic brains. They are better at recognizing other people's fears, so they're, they're more sensitive to the signs that other people are in distress. Uh, their amygdala is more reactive to these expressions, which may be why they're better at recognizing them. And then, in addition, their amygdalas are larger than uh, average people's as well by about 8%. So this may explain their level of compassion. I think, it's, yeah, it gets us a lot closer to understanding um, their compassion because, of course, compassion is the desire to help somebody who's suffering. And in order to feel the desire to help somebody who's suffering, you have to first just register that they're suffering and understand that they're suffering. And I think that um, altruistic kidney donors, because they, they seem to have brains that are unusually sensitive to other people's suffering, are much more likely to register that desire to help. Okay, in my background comments, I noted intentionally that there, uh, the numbers of those donating voluntarily have increased substantially. Um, I noted approximately 180 to 360 over a four-year period. And you've speculated on why uh, we are seeing this increase. Uh, and what's your explanation or your understanding of why we're seeing this? So um, the interesting thing about that is that it, it's, it goes along with a number of other kinds of altruism that are also increasing. Um, both in the U.S. And, and around the world as well. Um, if you look at statistics for uh, blood donations, for um, donating money, for helping a stranger, and there are polling organizations that ask about these things, um, you can see that year to year all of these different kinds of behavior are going up. And it is a really interesting question because, um, you know, sometimes when I talk about um, kidney donors having brains that are different than other people, um, the assumption is, well, it, that's just purely genetic. They were born that way. They're hardwired to be altruistic. And, of course, you know, that's nothing's really hardwired. We, um, we know that most human traits, and altruism is almost certainly no different, uh, have, are affected both by um, genetic factors and by environmental factors. And so, you know, the best estimate is that altruism is probably 
50 percent heritable. So you know, variation in altruistic behavior is maybe 50 percent the affected by genetics. Uh, but that means the other 50 percent is affected by other factors. Um, uh, you know, almost certainly things that are going on environmentally. And um, we don't know what those factors are, frankly. It's it's hard to, we have lots of guesses, but we don't know for sure. But, uh, you know, maybe there are variables out there that are uh, making people more altruistic over time, and almost certainly um, they're cultural variables that may be involved with uh, sort of general levels of well-being. Um, and my students and I have conducted research showing that if you look across the United States, um, the states where you see the highest rates of altruistic kidney donation per capita are the states where people are uh, report higher levels of well-being, which isn't it's happiness, but not just happiness. It's uh, sort of having a sense of meaning and purpose in life, um, having sort of basic needs, access to you know healthcare and, um, and resources. Um, uh, and having uh, strong relationships, a whole lot of things that go into well-being. But in any case, uh, in places where people's well-being levels are higher, um, people donate more kidneys. And we also found that one of the big predictors of whether people have a sense of well-being is that things are getting better uh, where they live. So in that in that community, in that in that state. Um, over time, um, health indicators are getting better, or uh, um, income is going up. And when things are improving, people do tend to have a sense of well-being, and it, it seems to make them more altruistic as well. Interesting. Thank you. The other question um, that occurs is, have you found similar or comparable acts of what is termed extraordinary altruism in healthcare? There, usually when you read on this subject, you you immediately get into the literature on blood donations, uh, and that's that's not considered extraordinary because, of course, uh, it's a pretty easy to do, takes a few minutes, etc. But are there comparable acts in healthcare? Have you found? Well, what's interesting is that we don't consider donating blood to strangers to be extraordinary simply because it's common. Right. Okay. Um, but there are plenty of places in the world where it's very uncommon to give blood to strangers, and they would consider that an extraordinary thing to do. To, I mean, if you think that it, it is sort of amazing that it, we consider it very normal in the, in, in the United States and many other countries, not just here, obviously, um, to, you know, for people to, to, to go in to some healthcare facility, let some stranger put a needle in your vein and take out a pint of blood, um, or more, and so they can be carted off and given to somebody that you've never met and will never meet. I mean, it, you know, if you step back a little bit and think about it, it, it is sort of an amazing thing that people do. Uh, and But huge numbers of Americans donate blood every year. Um, and in fact, you know, uh, at least for common blood types, you know, we, we tend to have all the blood that we need most of the time. Um, and in developing countries, this is definitely not true. It's very uncommon for people to donate blood, especially to strangers, on a voluntary basis. And it's something that's desperately needed in many places in the world is, is more blood donors. And um, and I think it's a really interesting thing to think about is how one of the reasons that we don't think of it as extraordinary anymore is because it's simply become the norm. And I would hate for people to stop appreciating how cool it is, how many people are willing to give up their, you know, their blood out of their veins to total strangers. Um, and so I do think that there are, there's some overlap between blood donations and donations of other things, like, for example, bone marrow and kidney donation. Um, 
the difference for blood donation is that because it's become much more culturally normative, there are other things that could drive somebody to donate blood other than sort of pure altruism. So, for example, just, you know, believing that it's just a sort of socially desirable thing to do, um, having it be just a very normative thing to do. Maybe you go with some some friends or some coworkers as a regular thing that you do together or people from your church. Um, and so now, because it's become less established behavior, there are many different things that could motivate people to donate blood other than just pure altruism. Uh, whereas, because donating a kidney is um, considered very non-normative, uh, there aren't that many reasons you could come up with that somebody would donate a kidney other than altruism. Okay, let me uh, ask. So as I noted, about half as many uh, kidney transplants were instances where the patient died or became too ill. So that begs the question, does this research suggest or lend evidence to the argument that from a policy perspective, we should uh, presume that everyone's a donor? So this is the opt-in or opt-out argument or discussion. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's your sense of societally that we can evolve to the point where, uh, and many have argued that if it's, if it's much like the policy debate right now on health care coverage, it's auto-enroll. Everyone's enrolled. Or similar to 401k policies by an employer, you're enrolled until you actively choose to disenroll. Are we evolving towards a policy where to reduce the dynamic where half the uh, number in need are, are dying or become too ill, such that we can, uh, again, from a policy perspective, do this through um, uh, presumptively uh, assuming everyone's a donor? That's a great question. Um, I think it would be very reasonable to have an opt-out system for deceased kidney donations, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that wouldn't fill a gap. There aren't ever going to be enough deceased kidneys um, per year to to get a kidney to everybody who's on the waiting list. Um, but I think uh, normalizing organ donation would go a long way towards um, sort of alleviating people's hesitation about, about donating. If it's just the thing that everybody does, then I think it would, um, people wouldn't, wouldn't spend so much time worrying about, you know, sort of conspiracy theories about organ black markets and the sort of the the things you'll sometimes hear mm -hmm. people say when they say why they don't want to donate their organs um, after they die. Okay. When it comes to, I'm oh, sorry, go I ahead. don't know if you're talking about, you know, donating a kidney for living donors. You know, that would be, you know, I think the, the risks of donating a kidney are not zero. And um, I think it'd be pretty hard to argue for considering that, you know, everybody should consider being a living kidney donor. Um, but I do think that if more people were aware of the average kidney donor's experience and how glad they are, you know, to a person that they donated, you know, I, I think more people would certainly be willing to donate than are mm -hmm. now. Okay, I don't want to get into this discussion, and you could guess, and that is, should we <laughs> allow uh, uh, living donors to receive financial uh, remuneration in donating. So let's avoid that. So my going out question will be, where do you go with this research? I mean, what's next? I mean, this is a fascinating topic, but how are you going to evolve this research? Well, the 
question that drives me, and it's it's a question that I wouldn't by any means say that I've completely answered yet, is what is it in the human brain that drives somebody to care about the welfare of someone else? And that's an interesting question because we know that plenty of species, for example, live perfectly well for millions of years without caring about others' welfare. It doesn't. It's not a necessary feature for a species. Uh, and yet we do as humans, and I think altruistic kidney donors are a pretty amazing example and, and a pretty irrefutable example of um, the fact that people really can care about others' welfare. And so um, if we can understand what in the brain supports the capacity to genuinely care for the welfare of other people, the most obvious thing that could be done with that information is to try to help people who don't have enough of that quality. So people who are psychopathic or are uh, otherwise uh, callous, um, which is not a, it's not a good way to live. It, it, it creates enormous problems both for the person with those traits and for pretty much everybody that they know. Um, it's, it's a terribly, um, it's a terribly problematic mental illness for everybody. Uh, we could, we might be able to fix it. Um, and that would be an enormous um, sort of improvement, both for the individuals and for society. Um, so I would say that's probably the easiest answer to what would we do with this information. But I think, you know, it would also help us sort of understand ourselves as a species better. I think I've encountered a lot of people, including, you know, my students here at Georgetown often, who are really quite cynical about human nature. Right? They, they just they don't really believe that anybody really cares about anybody else, not fundamentally. Um, and so I think if we can sort of better understand what it is about our brains that allows us to care about each other's welfare legitimately, I think it would really um, be beneficial in terms of just how we understand ourselves as well. So is it uh, a world that's nasty, brutish, and short, or is there... Uh, a, a, a sound, sane, evolutionary reason for us that we should be altruistic or more altruistic. So with that, um, we're at our time boundary, Professor Marsh. So I want to say thank you very much for this discussion. Again, fascinating subject, and I wish you the best of luck in your future-related re research. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.